Welcome to the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Today it is June 12th. We are just a couple days away from the start of the College World Series. A very exciting time in college baseball with just eight teams still playing, uh, all with uh, with the hope of raising the trophy there at TD Ameritrade Field in just about two weeks. So we are going to break down the College World Series field today. And to do that, we have Dave Serrano and Joe Healy joining. Glad to be back, Teddy. This is an exciting week, getting ready to go to Omaha like the other eight teams, and there's no better time of the year than this. the next two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Omaha's here, excited about it, ready to ready to take it all in. The baseball is great, obviously. That's that's the, the showstopper, but I'm also just excited for everything around the College World Series. I'm excited to walk through the baseball village. I'm excited to see all the, the tailgating setups out there. Um, I'm excited to sweat through my shirt within 15 minutes of getting out of my car. Um, all of that kind of stuff. It all makes the College World Series what's great about college baseball. Yeah, it's uh, it's a wonderful time. Uh, if you haven't gone, what are you doing listening to this podcast uh, in some respects? But in other respects, uh, I know it's uh, it, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, frankly. Uh, you know, you have to get to Nebraska. While, it, while it's an easy drive for Joe and, and some folks in, in that part of the country, you know, it's not it's not the easiest to get to. But if you go, you will be... It, it will be a very enjoyable experience. Uh, Omaha, the city, you know, really does a great job putting its best foot forward and welcoming in everyone during the event. And obviously the baseball is very high level and it's very exciting uh, with the stakes that, that everyone is playing for. And I, it's a, it's a fantastic event as um, you know, pretty much anyone that has gone, uh, you know, seems to agree that it's uh, it, it's, I, I kind of hate the term bucket list, but you know, if you have one, Omaha probably deserves to be on it. So this year, if you go, or if you're just going to tune in on, on ESPN, uh, you will see uh, a pretty interesting field. It, it wound up being rather chalky, and you know, that's even with two three seeds making it in Florida State and Michigan. You know, the eight teams, you've got Michigan, Vanderbilt, Auburn, Florida State, Arkansas, Mississippi State, Louisville, and Texas Tech. Now, all of those teams were ranked in our preseason top 25, as were all eight teams that they beat in Super Regionals. The eight teams that are in Omaha were all ranked in the top 20. Michigan was number 20. Uh, Vanderbilt was preseason number one. So it's been a pretty chalky year if the tournament hasn't been incredibly chalky it's been rather chalky as a tournament too but what what stands out to you guys is the biggest surprise to this point considering that we figured going into this year that all of these teams were, were going to be pretty good you know there's a couple storylines here first of all I think we talked a lot about was it going to be a chalky kind of year and sure enough it ended up being that way even though with the two three seeds getting in but the storylines for me are what Michigan did to what I felt and I bragged about what I felt was the most well-rounded team in the country in the UCLA Bruins, but uh, kudos to Coach Backus that, you know, they may have been a three seed and they may have had their struggles at times in the Big Ten, but watching Michigan on TV, that's a good baseball team. And it, it wasn't as much of an upset as people may think, because that is a good baseball team with good pitching and good athletes. Um, the Florida State story is, is, is a Cinderella story, even though it's not a Cinderella program. I am so happy for 11 and Coach Martin um, in the fact that he gets to end his career in Omaha, that he spent many days in, 17 years there. 
and just a fabulous story of that team putting him on their back and just carrying him into Omaha in a spectacular fashion to go into Baton Rouge and win two games in that atmosphere is, is remarkable to be honest with you. And then kind of like we talked last, uh, last week, really uh, happy for Butch Thompson and Auburn, the Auburn Tigers. It hasn't been a, a, a very clean year for them in regards to, to injuries and everything, all the adversity they've gone through, what they had to overcome last year and the fact that, that they got left on the field by a ball that hits the right fielder's glove and goes over the fence against Florida. And to get to the College World Series for the first time in many, many years is a great story. And just, I think just a lot of, in Arkansas, Arkansas returning after having a, having a tough loss on a, on a missed pop fly with one out to go to win the national championship. Dave Van Horn gets his team back. So I think there's some great stories along with the fact that Vanderbilt is loaded and what, and they've got there. It's a, it's a great setup for, for a, a two weeks of exciting, good college baseball. Yeah. I think the most surprising thing to me is, is, is Auburn being here and, and not that they're, um, you know, wasn't the talent for them to be here. It's kind of the way they've arrived here. We talked about it a little bit last week. They've just been so banged up and, and they've, they've had to win games ugly and they just kind of continue to do that in, in Chapel Hill. Um, you know, they, they still don't know what they're going to get from, from Tanner Burns, for example. And, you know, they go into that game three kind of wondering and then they score what is 13 runs in the first inning. So um, what's impressive to me about that in the abstract, though, is that uh, they got to Omaha in a year when things didn't go quite right. And I think if you're going to become the type of program that challenges to get to Omaha, uh, you know, year to year and, and try to get there, you know, kind of do what Texas Tech has done, right? Where Texas Tech is going for, you know, the fourth and six years or what have you. Um, I think you, you know, you, you have to get in sometimes when things didn't go quite right. If you're waiting around for this, uh, this one class of players to kind of grow up and, and, together and, and get better together and kind of uh, crest as juniors and seniors, uh, that's right putting a lot on one team. So can you get to Omaha when things ne- don't necessarily go your way and it, the, the conditions aren't just perfect for you to do so? It's always impressive when programs are able to do that. Auburn was a team that was under 500 in the regular season in the SEC. And uh, here they are going to Omaha with, with a record that's not quite as good as we expect from teams going to Omaha, you know, 38 and 26. I mean, they've taken, they've taken some losses this year. They've taken on some water and uh, they survived it. And, you know, it's, they got put on a t- on the tougher side of the bracket, Vanderbilt, Louisville, and Mississippi state are waiting there for them. Uh, that's going to be a, a real tough thing for them to, to work their way through. But, but I don't know, at this point, I think this is a pretty tough team. I think it's a team that just has a lot of belief. Um, and even if it is a relatively quick stay in Omaha, um, I can guarantee you those games are going to, uh, be hard fought and Auburn's going to do what they can to do what they've done all along, which is just kind of stay alive, fight and give themselves a chance in the end. Yeah. I liked Auburn a lot coming into the year, but, but that was based on the fact that Tanner Burns and Davis Daniel were at the top of the rotation and Daniel pitched on opening weekend and hasn't pitched since, uh, had surgery after the year, of course. Uh, and Burns has been banged up for the last, I don't know, six weeks. And Jack Owen emerged uh, early in the season, and then he missed a couple starts. So the the offense, they have no no one has double-digit home runs. No one is hitting 300, but Auburn persists. And this is the third year in a row now that Auburn has overachieved in the postseason with Butch Thompson at the helm. Um, if you go back to, uh, to I guess that was, what, 17? They 
nearly won the Tallahassee Regional in a year that they were not expected to do so. Uh, in, in 18 last year, they, they won the NC State Regional going on the road to do so and very nearly upset Florida in Gainesville then. And then this year, um, they aren't supposed to be in Omaha. <laughs> they probably weren't. If you just look at it, they, they should not have come out of uh, the Georgia Tech Regional. You, you wouldn't have thought they, they would have made it out of Atlanta as banged up as, as they went in there. And here they are, and, and they're playing with an incredible amount of belief. I also think, like Dave said, what, what Arkansas has done this year to to be able to bounce back, there were a lot of people wondering just what the mental state of uh, the Razorbacks would be after they uh, they lost the World Series the way that they did a year ago. And I made it pretty clear on this podcast and in other platforms that I was I just wasn't sure that they had the complementary pieces uh, to to replace what they lost from last year and they have absolutely shown that they do. And, you know, now they enter the world, this year's college world series, much like they did last year with a, a very legitimate chance to go win a national title. And uh, I, I think that those two, those two teams, especially kind of stand out. I mean, what Michigan has done to to bounce back has been somewhat surprising and definitely impressive. But uh, at the same time, we, I never doubted their talent. It just, wasn't coming together uh, consistently, and um, you know it finally did, and they uh, they went out and, and became the first team to to beat UCLA in a series all season, which is a huge surprise in itself. But um, you know it is a talented team there in Ann Arbor, and, and it's going to be interesting to see them uh, on the big field at TD Ameritrade. So as we go into this, it looks like Vanderbilt is the the clear favorite. They're the highest remaining seed. They're the SEC champs. They lead the nation in wins. Um, they have an unbelievable array of talent, um, especially on the hitting side, but also on the pitching side. We just saw Kumar Rocker throw a no-hitter, strike out 19 batters on Saturday against Duke in, in an elimination game for the Commodores. They're on, they've really been pretty red hot for at least six weeks, two months. Um, so they look like the favorites. Who do you think can cha- challenge the Commodores, um, you know, at, for, at as, uh, as favorites as, as we go into this? I'm going to Omaha to see what I think is an, a pretty open field. I, I love the Vanderbilt team and who, who doesn't, you know, especially the way, you know, they consistently hit all year and their, their pitching's coming on as of late. Um, but I, I think it's a wide open field. I, I really do. I, I, I think uh, Arkansas, Arkansas has a chance to, to get back to the national championship game. And, and um, you know, I, you know what, what, what Florida State has done and, you know, I mean, what would be better for college baseball for, for Mike Martin to get into the national championship game and win it all? It, would that not be the greatest story of all time uh, for a coaching legend um, to, to do that? But I think it's an open field. I, obviously, Vanderbilt will be the favorite, especially now with the Bruins out of it. But uh, I think it's gonna, there's going to be some interesting things that happen over the next two weeks. And and uh, it might not be as chalky as, as, as the regionals and super regionals were when it's all said and done. I actually like Mississippi State a little bit. Um, and they're, they're on that side of the bracket. Uh, so they're going to get a look at them uh, probably, probably early. Uh, if, if things go chalk, they'll get them in that, um, their second game. I think you also, um, yeah, that, that's interesting with Mississippi State, just having seen them during Supers, they're, they're rolling again. They, they look great, and they absolutely are going there only to win a national title. 
Jake Mangum is is pretty determined to be to to go out on top and and to be a part of the team that that finally brings a title back to Starkville. But I, I think when you look at that half of the bracket, it, it looks a little tougher with um, with Vanderbilt and Louisville looming in a potential uh, winner's bracket game. On the other side, it looks a little more open um, with, uh, with Florida State and Michigan being on that side. And so Arkansas's path to the finals feels a little bit easier than some of these other teams. And that's not to discount what's happening right now with, with Florida State and Michigan, who both have absolutely proven uh, over the last two weeks what, what they're capable of. If, if you weren't sure about it before, you should be now. And Texas Tech is a, a really, really good team themselves. Uh, but I, I think that that half does look a little easier, and Arkansas does appear to be the favorite on that side. And so I think you have to like what the Hogs could pull off here um, if they're able to, you know, it, if they are able to get through and they look like the favorites on that side, then you just have to win a three-game series. And, um, you know, that at that point, it, the, the path, the path there is just easier for them. So I, I think when you look at Arkansas's offense, when you look at the fact that Isaiah Campbell, um, you know, is at the front of that rotation and Matt Cronin's at the back of the bullpen, I, I think that they have to be looked at as a, as a very serious contender for the national championship again this year. And uh, I, I'll be interested to see how that all shakes out. But I, I saw a Vegas line that had them and Vanderbilt just about the same. And I believe that's because they're looking at Arkansas as having the easier path uh, to the finals. And if that if that comes to fruition in Arkansas Vanderbilt uh, finals, that would be that would be quite fun. We have seen that already this year. Uh, it was in Nashville and, and Vanderbilt won it. But um, I would be I would be foreseeing that again if if it happened. Now, mentioning all of these SEC teams, there are four of them there. Uh, three of them are from the SEC West. We knew this year that the SEC was the best conference, but how impressive is it that the SEC, what the SEC West has done this postseason and in getting three teams to Omaha? Joe, uh, what do you make of that? No, I mean, it's, it's incredibly impressive, and it's just kind of the continuation of, uh, of what we've seen with what the SEC has accomplished from a, from a baseball standpoint for a long time. There's a, a piece on BaseballAmerica.com now uh, J.J. Cooper did, uh, there's a little plug there. There's a little synergy. Wow, way to um, suck to your boss. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a, but it, it's really interesting. So, if, I mean, if, it's got some kind of colorful charts and graphs here, which are, you know, visually interesting. But talks about how, you know, the SEC has averaged, you know, this century 2.3 teams in Omaha, which is about 29% of Omaha representatives. So, obviously, getting 50% is a pretty big jump there. But when you consider they're really just jumping from, you know, two and change to four, um, but it, it just kind of goes to show that as much talk as, as there is, and, and, and we get this, and other publications get this, commented and on Twitter and what have you, that the SEC is overrated and there's SEC bias and so on and so forth. Look, the proof is in the pudding. I don't, I don't know what else we could say. I mean, these teams earn their way here. They're, nobody got a buy into the College World Series. They've all had to prove it, and they're all here. And I think going back to what Auburn has accomplished, I think that's a great example of just how difficult that conference is. That team was under 500, and all they've done is, is gone and won a regional at the number three national, whether you thought Georgia Tech was supposed to be, should have been the number three national seed or not. They went and won that regional on the road, then went on the road in Chapel Hill and took two out of three against North Carolina to earn their spot here. And I think that really kind of goes to show just how difficult that conference is that that team in particular 
uh, even with all the challenge they had, ended up under 500 in the regular season, and, and here they are. So um, it's just uh, this is you know this is college baseball for you now. The SEC is just an absolute gauntlet, and, and getting out of the SEC just to get into the postseason is is in some ways just as much of a challenge as as getting to this point once you're in the postseason. Dave, uh, I, you competed I, there. What uh, what do you make of of what the conference has become? Well, there's no doubt. I, I agree with what Joe said. I think I think what happens is when they get when the SEC teams get to the regionals and they get to the super regionals, they've been so battle tested throughout the year. I I said this in my six years there. That thirty that thirty game schedule of SEC games is the biggest grind. And every win, no matter how ugly it is in SEC play, is a good win. And I think that the battle-tested teams, it, it's proven that. And sometimes, I, I don't mean this disrespectfully by no means, but it's almost like when you get to a regional or super regional, it may be a little easier than it was in a weekend series. There is, there is uh, four teams out of the SEC that didn't make a regional that I would say you could put into a regional and they may have made it out of a regional. That's how tough it is um, through that conference. And it's just, it is. It's, it's, I know it bothers people around the country uh, to hear all the time, but there's no doubt they are the cream of the crop. Um, and there's many reasons for that. Um, not just the talent, not just the teams, not just the coaching, but the, the venues they play in. And there's a reason why their percentage of getting teams to Omaha each and every year is, is so high and so consistent. So now, speaking of some of the other parts of the country and that may not appreciate what the SEC has become, um, the West Coast. And there are no West Coast teams in the field this year. UCLA got upset in Super Regionals. Stanford went on the road and, and lost it to Mississippi State. Obviously, Oregon State got upset in, uh, in the regional round going 0-2. Um, and the rest of the Pac-12 didn't have such a great showing themselves. You know, none, none of the mid-majors were able to, to make it out. And, um, you know, the what we're left with is for just the second time in College World Series history, no one from the West is coming to Omaha. Dave, what does it mean that, that that's happened this year, especially in a year where at times it looked like the Pac-12 had three real solid national title contenders in Stanford – Oregon State and UCLA and did have the number one overall seed in this tournament in the Bruins. It's disappointing to be honest with you. It's, it's disappointing for the West coast. It's not good for the West coast um, by no means. Um, and it's not a coincidence that that may be the reason why there's so many jobs more than anywhere else in the country that are open on the West coast right now and are, and are being closed by new um, head coaches and staff. Um, you know, I'll even go a little bit farther of a team you didn't mention, uh, uh, UC Santa Barbara, who was a team that was being talked about as a national, as, as a national seed as of maybe two weeks with the, the left in the season, and they go 0-2 in their regional. That's disappointing for them, disappointing for the, uh, the Big West Conference that has represented their conference in Omaha quite a bit over the last 10 years. So it is disappointing. Um, uh, there's probably a lot of reasons why they're behind some other conferences in the country. A lot of it is finances, but, um, uh, you know, and, and I'll say this, I'll say this is a little bit of a crutch to the West coast that uh, I'll use Stanford for an example. You know, they got suited in a regional with four, four California teams. They were lucky to get out of it. Um, but it is a little tougher. It, it is a little tougher because they don't get spread around the country as much. 
but the bottom line is they had an opportunity this year and and no one came out of it and it's it's uh it's a it's a hole that the big west has to get out of because they're they're falling behind um a lot of other people around the country and we all know there's a lot of talent out there in california but a lot of kids will start to venture out to other schools around the country if they don't see more teams getting omaha because the ultimate thing when a kid goes to a college to play baseball is one get an education um but also to play in omaha so those teams need to battle through this and, and get back out there. So, Joe, you know, our friend Aaron Fitt uh, made a comment on Twitter on um, Sunday night. He was watching, you know, the games at UCLA and in, in Starkville. And he compared them, the, the watching that it was like when he was watching the games in L.A., it looked like a James Taylor concert. And when he flipped to Starkville, it looked like an ACDC comment concert and while i don't actually relate to to those bands because i'm not as old as fitzy is uh I, I do understand the point that he's trying to make and you you were doing the same thing that he was doing what what did you think of of the disparate atmospheres and um you know just what that what that plays into when when you know we're looking when we're making comparisons when kids are making comparisons uh recruits and and, and all like that yeah, I mean, it was a stark difference. I saw the tweet you're referring to, and, and I actually, I, yeah, kind of nodded my head in agreement, you know, sitting there on my own, because I, I felt the same way, flipping back and forth, that it was it was quite the difference. And, and I think that that kind of stuff matters, you know, to your point. I mean, when, um, you know, if you're taking a, you know, if you're a kid who has the opportunity to to play it, you know, a Mississippi State versus UCLA, just to use the example that was that was tweeted about. Um, and you're you're going on visits to some of these these schools that are during a weekend series. I mean, which one is going to stand out to you from that standpoint? I know there's a lot of other factors that go into it. It's not just that, but um, you know, it'd be hard to pass up you know an opportunity to go play at Mississippi State with the way Duty Noble rocks. Uh, not just this time of year, but but really all year. Um, that place is is packed out and loud and, and a great atmosphere. And it's not just there. It's you know Fayetteville and Oxford and Baton Rouge and. Um, you know, a lot of different places in, in that part of the country. So it, it, it is it, it is quite a difference. But, you know, there, this is a, obviously a much larger conversation than, than just this podcast and just college baseball in general. I think that's kind of true in college sports across the board. I mean, even the West Coast programs, uh, now I don't want to get too out of my depth here because I, I'm not, you know, in the same way that I follow college baseball, I do not follow college football and basketball quite as, as closely, but I, but I do follow those sports. And it's my perception of it that, you know, for as good as Stanford has been in football under David Shaw, that it's just not the atmosphere that you get in other parts of the country for programs that have been similarly successful. Um, so some of that, I think, is just like a college sports culture thing, uh, depending on uh, where you are in the country. So I think that's uh, that's kind of what plays in here as much as anything else. But it but it does kind of draw um, you know, that's a comparison you draw. And it's one of the areas where, as as Dave alluded to, where the West has. Uh, perhaps falling behind a little bit is, you know, kind of in the investment piece, uh, whether that's facilities or, or what have you. Um, that's I think that's where you can see that stark difference, um, because even just the stadiums, you know, you, you look at Duty Noble. And I know that's the, the grandest example in college baseball, but, um, you know, you look at that versus Jackie Robinson Stadium at UCLA um, and it's just there's there's really no comparison there. So um, my, my other thought here, just real quick, is is I've seen a lot of kind of 
2020 hindsight stuff talking about, well, UCLA wasn't as good as we thought they were. And, and okay, maybe they weren't number one with a bullet like we thought they were for the entirety of the season. Maybe that was a little bit much there and maybe they just weren't being challenged like we thought maybe they were. But let's, you know, let's stop short of saying that they were some sort of fraudulent team there. I mean, you, you look at the talent there, you look at the kids they had drafted, you look at how many games they won. I mean, they didn't lose a series all year, for goodness sakes, um, during the regular season. Um, that team was really, really good. So let's not kind of, and this is to, to those on, you know, social media, and what have you, that's, I'm not obviously speaking to you two, but, um, but I saw a lot of that after UCLA got eliminated and in Stanford as well. And, um, we need to stop short of that. Just stop with that. Those teams were very, very good. Uh, they had bad weekends, and, and maybe maybe they weren't quite as, as good as we had thought they were, but it's not like these two teams were just complete frauds going into the postseason. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I generally hate making comparisons between regions. I just think that there are so many factors that go into it. Obviously, the West Coast generally just gets all bunched together, but, you know, it's different than in the Southeast where you have both the SEC and the ACC can be called Southeastern conferences. You know, those are two major, major conferences. The West has the Pac-12. That is it. You know, the Big West is not on the same level as those other three conferences that I've mentioned. And um, you know, it's a great baseball league. And then the West Coast Conference is a great baseball league itself, but it's also not the Big West. And, and so you have these like striations out there. And, um, you know, then there is the Mountain West, but, you know, as a baseball league, it's probably not on the same level as those other two. And there just are fewer schools out there, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that this has only happened twice in the history of the tournament does seem rather significant. I don't know that it's a trend in any way. Um, but it does seem rather significant that the the West was shut out this year, especially in a year where it looked like they had real national title contenders. And, um, you know, maybe given a different draw, Stanford, you know, gets there. And, and, you know, just going to Starkville was always going to be very difficult for whoever got that draw in, in a super. You know, UCLA just wins one more game and they're there and we aren't talking about this. So it, it, the margins are very slim here and that that's certainly a part of this, but I do think that considering that this has only happened now twice, um, it is, it is something that, that is disconcerting for the, uh, for the PAC 12, especially, but really for the West as a whole. And, you know, when you look at it from a broader sports perspective, you know, the PAC 12 now, this year didn't have a team in the college football playoff, didn't have a team in the final four and doesn't have a team in Omaha. And um, for a conference that's taken a lot of hits for a conference that is looking for a cash infusion uh, to get itself back on the same level as the rest of the power five until its TV contracts come up again in a few years. I mean, this is not a good position for it to be in. And I'm not saying anything that is new here at all, but um it's now leaking into baseball. If if it wasn't before, it now clearly is, uh, and, and you know it's it's going to be interesting to see how where they go from here. And, and like Dave mentioned, there there have been several coaching changes. USC's coaching chain has a has an open job. Oregon uh, just hired Mark Wasikowski from Purdue, and Washington State hired Brian Green from New Mexico State. So it'll be interesting to see if any of those guys can 
can make a breakthrough and, and what happens at, at other places where, um, you know, they're trying to get back to the level that they're accustomed to, like an Arizona State or that's the West Coast. Let's talk about the team that beat UCLA, and that was Michigan. They are going back to Omaha for the first time since 1984. The Big Ten is back in Omaha for just the second time in like 35 years. And they do it. With, it was the Big Ten favorite, but it wasn't the team that was necessarily playing the best coming into the tournament from the Big Ten. Uh, they'd kind of scuffled down the stretch. But, Joe, what, what do you make of the fact that the Big Ten is back? And, and what do you make of, of this Michigan team, what they've been able to do over the last two weeks? Yeah, for Michigan, it's just been kind of a realization of the potential that we knew they had. I mean, I, when we talked in our preseason top 25 meetings, which seems like, I don't know, six and a half years ago now, um, you know, we, we kind of were effusive in our praise of this Michigan team. And, and I kind of seem to remember, remember us talking about, you know, they might should be higher, but just kind of wondering if, you know, some of the the things like having to go on the road early, stuff like that might allow, may force them to take some lumps early, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, we so long story short, we were pretty high on them. Uh, so I think this is kind of just the realization of that potential that it took them a while to, to come around to. So, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of nice to see that because it, it kind of validates what we thought about that team coming into the year. Uh, for the Big Ten, I think it's huge. And there's been some um, hand-wringing is maybe too strong a word, but, you know, I, I – uh, Zach Osterman of the Indianapolis Star reached out to me a couple weeks ago, and, and we chatted a little bit on the phone for a piece he did. I think actually just went up, so check that out. Um, kind of on, um, you know, where does the Big Ten, I mean, it was through the lens of Indiana University because that's who he covers, but where does the Big Ten kind of go from here? His point was kind of that it felt like the Big Ten had uh, plateaued a little bit ever since hitting that t- peak of, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015 when Indiana gets to the college world series and then gets a top eight seed. And then the next year, uh, Illinois is a top eight seed. And I hadn't really given it too much consideration and thought of it that way, but I think he's kind of right. And so kind of what we were spitballing is where does that, where do they go from here? And, um, I think the short version is just keep doing what you're doing because the league is doing all the right things. The investment is there. We've talked about that a lot, you know, the, the facilities and the, the coaches that are in the league now. And I think it says a lot that Mark Wazikowski, frankly, just to touch on that real quick, you know, it was a West Coast guy, but then took a job at Purdue because he saw the potential of that program in the Big Ten, knowing that, you know, I don't have to sit and hang out here on the West Coast to get other opportunities. I can go coach at Purdue and win there, and he did, um, and get those opportunities. I think that's a big thing for the league, something like that happening. So in all the ways that a league needs to put itself in position to have success, the Big Ten has done that. Um, so that's kind of the short version is I don't think there's too much reason for panic, but going beyond that, you know, Zach and I talked about, you know, the league kind of has to go together because right now I think it kind of feels like, I think it would be easy to dismiss that success Indiana had because, well, okay, that team had Sam Travis and Kyle Schwarber and Aaron Slagers and a whole bunch of guys who made it, you know, high in the minor leagues and were really, really talented players. Um, you know, I think Travis and Schwarber get kind of the headlines there, but that pitching staff was really pretty ridiculous. So um, the talent there was just so unbelievable. I think it's easy to kind of dismiss that as well. That was, you know, Tracy Smith did a really good job stockpiling talent there and it kind of all came together. Um, That's kind of a one-off, if you will. I think it'd be easy to do that. But now it's a little bit harder to do that with the Big Ten because you have had what Indiana did and now you've got Michigan back. and, And then you can kind of start to look at the full picture and say, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this league is finding another gear. Um, So I think 
I think it's big in that in that regard. I mean, uh, coming back around to my original point, I, maybe there was that little bit of a plateau there, but now you can point to two programs who have gotten to the College World Series, a couple of others in Minnesota last year and Illinois in 2015 who came really, really close. That's four different programs just in the last six years from 2013 until now who have either gotten to Omaha or have come within one or two wins of doing so, and that's absolutely huge for the conference. Dave, what kind of growth have you seen from the Big Ten, you know, really just since you uh, since you got to Tennessee and just over the last eight years, it seems like there's been some pretty significant growth happening in that conference. I think it's huge, and I think it starts with the recruiting. And, you know, obviously uh, they're, they're keeping more guys. You know, they're going down south and getting guys, and they're keeping the guys. There's some good, you know, in the Big Ten, there's some good baseball in those states, and they're keeping some of those guys from going south, and they're pulling some guys from the south, and they're going out west and getting some guys. I it's been huge growth. And as Joe was talking, I was just kind of thinking about um, hearing the numbers he was putting up of, you know, you talk about as Northern as you, as you can get in this country in the big 10 and to see the success, and you could go down the list. Some, you know, Illinois is the team that we didn't talk about that had a good team this year. So the, I think the big 10 has made huge strides in regards to college baseball. And it's funny, we're talking about this right after we talked about the West coast and how they've kind of split a little bit. I think the Big Ten is going the other direction, and I think they're only going to get better. I mean, they're, they're going to continue to get better and build off the success of what, what people around the country are seeing they're doing. Because let's, let's be honest, it's, it's, for student-athletes, it's a great education at all those schools in the Big Ten. So that's an attraction right there. Now if their teams are being shown on TV more and are showing up in Omaha, it's going to make the Big Ten a, a, a tough no for a recruit to say if, if they're being recruited by them. But, yeah, huge strides of what they're making to get up with the, I guess, to say the Joneses of the world of college baseball. And I'm not saying they're there yet, but they're a lot closer than they were five to ten years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about just keeping guys, um, John Morosi, a noted Michigan alum, tweeted this morning that of um, – of the Wolverines' top 11 hitters in terms of at-bats, eight are from Michigan, Illinois, or Wisconsin. And among the pitchers and in innings pitched, uh, the top of the top five, four are from Michigan. There's talent there. And honestly, uh, the fact that Wisconsin doesn't have baseball has really benefited several teams in the Big Ten, maybe no one more than Michigan, who uh, has gotten very successful not only at keeping kids in Michigan, but at keeping... Uh, Wisconsin kids in that general area, um, they, they've been very successful at mining those two. And, and you know, Michigan recruits nationally with Eric Backage. Jesse Franklin, one of their best players, is from Seattle. They consistently go out west uh, for junior college players, especially. And you know, they they have inroads elsewhere. But you know, so a great job by by Backage and Nick Schnabel to to put that team together and, and to look nationally. But there is talent in the uh, in the Midwest. You know, I've probably talked about it on the podcast before. I certainly talk about it on Twitter all the time. Ohio high school baseball is amazing. And I say that as a native Clevelander, but it goes beyond that. I mean, what, what the kids are doing in Indiana, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Illinois, you know, those kids can compete. And for a long time, those kids just left. You know, for the kids that stay, they're 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 becoming more numerous, and you know they they really can help propel these teams in that area of the country further. And, and as the schools commit more resources to it, you know you, you're you're seeing success. And 
when people ask me why has the Big Ten gotten better, I mean that that's really my simplest answer is they have the money and they're they're spending it on baseball now, whereas in the past they might not have. And, and so what what you're seeing is the the, the fruits of all of that. And I, I think it's great that they've that Michigan had this breakthrough, and, and now we'll see it, it, where the rest of the conference takes it from there. There are interestingly two uh, Big Ten jobs open or three Big Ten jobs open right now. Uh, Purdue, Nebraska, and Rutgers, and only one of those you would describe as the top half of the Big Ten job. Nebraska is very certainly that, and it'll be very interesting to see what they do. But Purdue and Rutgers are, are trying to break into that still, and um, you know Purdue's had a taste of it a couple times in the last decade, uh, winning a Big Ten title and finishing second. And you know I'll be very interested to see how they replace Waz. Um, you know just where where they turn, how much they're going to commit to, to a new coach and uh, how much they want to, to still be good at baseball. That's a place that, that build us, uh, you know, build a stadium and, and, and has been successful there. So I, I think there's a lot of growth potential still for the big 10. Let us revisit our national championship picks. Uh, Dave and I, the last time we did this on the podcast, both picked UCLA. So we need new ones. Uh, Joe, you picked Vanderbilt. Are you, uh, are you still riding with Vanderbilt? I am. I don't know if you guys saw, but Kumar Rocker threw a 19 strikeout no hitter. Um, so I feel pretty good about that right now. Uh, Dave, where, where are you turning now that uh, UCLA is out? I, you know, I'm, I'm torn. Uh, I really like Vanderbilt's team. They're they're the obvious choice as we've talked about. But as I said, some unusual things I, I feel could happen. Um, it's hard to go away from Mississippi State. I hear you guys loud and clear. Uh, I think that senior leadership is uh, going to propel them. And I'm going to I'm going to switch and I'm going to go with the Bulldogs, the Mississippi State Bulldogs, win the national championship. After what I saw in Starkville this weekend, I'm really in no position to to say no to that. But uh, I will. I am going back to my original national championship prediction uh, way back in January when I picked Florida State to win the whole thing. Said it was a sentimental pick at the time. It kind of remains so. But at the same time, Florida State's on a six-game winning streak. They're playing about as well as anyone. Whatever they've found is working right now, whether it's just a looseness, um, you know, now that they're in the tournament, whether it's that they're playing for 11, whatever they're doing, it's working. And, I, you know, C.J. Van Eyck is a guy that you need to watch for in, in the 2020 draft. Um, you know, he's a, a definite first round contender, first top half of the first round contender, really. And so that gives them a, a, an absolute stud in the rotation. Drew Parrish is very experienced. And I think uh, he'll like pitching in the, the, the big park of TD Ameritrade. J.C. Flowers at the back end of the bullpen is, is pretty locked down. And um, they have a lot of talent up and down that lineup. I, I really like what Drew Mendoza is doing right now. Obviously, he hit the walk off to to send them to Omaha, but it, it's not just him. There's a lot of talent in the lineup. And, um, you know, like I mentioned before, they're on what I would consider to be the easier side of the bracket. So they have a little bit of a, a simpler path potentially. Uh, so I am, I'm going with Florida state. I'm going back to it. And uh, we're, we're going with uh, Mike Martin going out in, in absolute style, winning the, his first national championship uh, after a stupendous, just, legendary 40-year career there at Florida State. So we will find out in two weeks if any of us was right. Probably none of us will be. That's that's generally how baseball works. Um, before we get out of here, I wanted to also mention that this week at BaseballAmerica.com, we released 
Um, our College Player of the Year award, we announced Adley Rutschman as the College Player of the Year to the surprise of, I'm sure, exactly nobody. Our All-America teams can also be found at BaseballAmerica.com. They will, all of that will be in the July issue of Baseball America if you are a subscriber or if you want to go out and pick that up. Um, you, you can find all of that there. But guys, Adley, his, uh, his college career came to a shockingly early end when Oregon State got eliminated in the regional. He then was made the number one overall pick in the draft by the Orioles. He is now um, wrapping up the, uh, the award circuit with uh, not only our Player of the Year award, he'll, uh, we'll find out about Golden Spikes pretty soon here, whether he, uh, he won that or not. Uh, but when you look back at, at Rutschman's career, what, what stands out to you the most about what he was able to accomplish uh, during his three years at Oregon State? I think he's a coach's dream. Uh, as, a, as, as a coach that's, that's coached many players, I think every coach wishes they had someone like uh, Adley. Uh, not only is it, is it makeup-wise, I think the makeup may be off the chart even more than the ability, and the ability is off the chart. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, to know that he won a national championship last year is deserving. It's, it's disappointing for me because you want to see players like that in Omaha again. I think the best players deserve to get to finish their careers in Omaha, but he, but he, he won a national championship, but I, I just think he's, uh, he'll be recognized, you know, he'll get to, he'll be in the big league soon. I think very soon, uh, once he gets through all his circuit of all the awards and all that, when he gets going, um, I think it's just it's a it's a tribute to him of what he brought to college baseball and what for any youngster that's watching the game uh, just to watch the way and, and to put his talent aside the passion and and the kind of teammate he was as a player and I think any young player that's watched him over his three years at Oregon State could only have learned uh, the right way of playing the game but um, congratulations to him and I wish him the best and and he's a he's been a great player and a great person for college baseball yeah i guess it's only fair if i if i shouted out something jj wrote earlier in the podcast that i shout out um something teddy wrote um on adley rutchman in the latest edition of the magazine and go out there and pick up a magazine do it um fantastic read um so teddy hit on this this is not new ground i'm going to cover here but it's what stands out to me and that you know when he was a freshman he was not a particularly effective offensive player um and that's you know freshman in a major conference uh, there is an illustrious line of players who have had struggles as a freshman and have gone on to be productive, but I think very few, I would imagine, uh, without having looked at an exhaustive history of all these players, I, I would imagine that the it's a much smaller list of players who have gone from really kind of struggling in a lot of ways offensively as a freshman to being, you know, one of the truly elite offensive producers over the next two years. Um, but his jump from freshman to sophomore year, and then again, you know, in, in some ways from um, his sophomore to junior season has really just been incredible. Um, it's, it's a transformation from, from that side of the ball that, um, you know, you just don't see very often. And, um, you know, I remember as a, as a, when he was a freshman hearing a lot of talk about, boy, if the bat ever comes around, you know, he's an elite defensive catcher. He has all the skills back there. You know, if the offense ever comes around, that's kind of just gravy. And well, that's probably been the best tasting gravy that college coach has ever been able to taste because I mean, he's just been, um, absolutely incredible on, on all, in all facets of his game since then. But, uh, just the transformation he made offensively stands out to me the most for sure. Yeah. I think, uh, Adley is just, been such an incredible player and 
you know, I, I think back to that 2017 season when we were trying to figure out um, Freshman All-America Awards. Rutschman was clearly this amazing defender on a team that had, you know, that won 56 games that was just clearly the best team in the regular season. And, but he only hit something like 250. And, you know, trying to trying to jam him on to a freshman All-America team proved to be impossible, that there were there were other catchers that we needed to honor. And to think that 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 kid that we couldn't get on a freshman All-America team because he only hit what he hit and now has become the best hitter in college baseball, um, the number one overall pick that. I, it, it's an incredible transformation. It's what I wrote about in the the piece Joe's alluding to. I my idea going into when I was sitting down to write that story and, and doing all the work leading up to that uh, wasn't really necessarily to write about Adley's offensive transition or transformation. It just I kept coming back to it that what he was as a freshman was a really 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 good player, but it was also more of a role player on, on an outstanding team and. What what he became then the next year on, on the national championship team on a team with three top forty picks itself in that draft, um, he was already the best player on that team as a sophomore, and the transformation was quick and, and it was amazing to watch. And we're all going to miss having having Rutschman in the game next year. I mean, he he just is uh, you know just a, a fantastic representative of of. Oregon State of college baseball of, of what you would want just a student athlete to be. And I, I think he's going to do amazing things in pro ball. And, and I'm just glad that we got to see it uh, for three years in college that, that he did go to go to school and that, that he played such a prominent role in uh, some very significant teams here over the last three years. And I, I'm like Dave, I'm a little disappointed we won't get to see him in Omaha. But I am excited to see who has the kind of impact that, that Rutschman did a year ago, who, who makes that impact this year, and then who makes that, that jump into stardom. Uh, you know, I think we saw Kumar Rocker kind of do that already in Super Regionals with that 19 strikeout no-hitter. Um, but maybe an Austin Martin on that same Vanderbilt team can do it. Um, you know, maybe it's someone else. You know, I think in college baseball, we're pretty aware of Casey Martin and, and, and uh, Heston Kerstad, but... Uh, they have another level they can get to still, I know. And, um, you know, there are countless guys around the country. Jordan Westberg at Mississippi State. Um, you know, I, I, we could go through someone for, from every team. And I I don't know. We, we tried to make a stab at predicting who it would be uh, when the tournament started. But now we're going to find out, uh, you know, who, who kind of uh, shapes the narrative over the next two weeks in Omaha. And I'm very excited to see that. I know Dave and Joe are. Uh, as well. So I would encourage you all to um, make sure you are you are following our work over at baseballamerica.com over the next two weeks. There will be plenty there uh, coming from the College World Series. You can also follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Dave is at Dave Serrano 11. And Joe is Joe underscore on underscore sports. Um, also, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. I do not know when we are going to record the next one. It may be in Omaha. It may not be. I'm not entirely sure of the schedule. So if you're subscribed, though, you don't have to worry about it. When uh, when we record, uh, it'll show up on your favorite podcast app on your phone. So uh, make sure you're subscribed. And while you're there, you can uh, if you can rate and review us that we, we appreciate that as well, because it helps other people 
to find the podcast. So we're excited for the next two weeks. I hope you guys are as well and that you'll be following along over at baseballamerica.com and the various other channels uh, to which we publish things. When we come to you next, uh, I, like I said, I'm not sure, but we uh, will we'll have plenty more to talk about then. Uh, so until then, thank you for listening. Thank you to Dave. Thank you to Joe. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll see you next time. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.